Hello and welcome to Office Hours, a podcast about campus politics in the end times. We're your hosts, Laura Martin and David Spataro. Today, we're going to be talking about an adjunct unionization campaign at Seattle University. The campaign began in 2013 and won a majority vote to unionize with SEIU, but the Seattle U administration sued to stall the vote count. Then, when the votes finally got counted, the admin refused to recognize the union and threatened to take the case all the way up to the Supreme Court. Facing an uphill battle in the courts and the incoming Trump administration's hostility to labor rights, the union leadership decided to end the campaign. Today, Seattle University's adjuncts remain without a union. We'll be talking with one of the key organizers in the campaign, a former Seattle University adjunct instructor named Larry Kushney. Larry is a parent and educator now teaching politics and cannabis studies at South Seattle College. Larry's interview sheds light on the challenges that adjunct unionization drives face today and provides valuable lessons for organizers. podcast, Larry. Uh, Can you introduce yourself? And just before we get into talking about the organizing campaign, just tell us a little bit about uh, working conditions at Seattle University and what it what it's like being an adjunct. Yeah, so uh, my name is Larry Kushney. Uh, I teach mostly in politics departments, uh, but I've also taught uh, labor studies, comparative history of ideas, SOCH, what else are my classes cross listed with? You know, the utility infielder of the uh, adjunct world is definitely uh, kind of philosophy is kind of where I've landed. Um, So when I was teaching at Seattle University, um, we were in some fairly dire straits. Um, One of the most significant issues that folks were dealing with was it was a regular occurrence for courses to be canceled the day before the quarter started without any warning whatsoever. Um, And sometimes I was even full classes where they just shifted uh, faculty around because they had to fill a load for somebody who was uh, tenured or tenure track. Um, And what would happen is all of the benefits, um, which were relatively meager at Seattle at the time, um, were dependent upon how many classes you teach in a year. Um, So I had friends who a class was canceled the day before, they lost their healthcare then at the exact same time, were in the middle of treatments for um, various ailments. Um, and, and then the other part of it too was, I think at the time pay was less than $3,000 a class. Mm. Um, so if you were teaching full-time, you know, a three, three, three on the quarter system load there, um, it was meager at best and nobody was getting that many classes. So it was those conditions combined with, um, a lack of space. Uh, I, when I started there was sharing an office with seven other adjuncts, um, that had, you know, two computers in it trying to have conversations with students was, of course, impossible. Um, It's all the typical things you hear about, you know, a university that leans extra heavily upon that part-time population um, for teaching. Um, But I was also, you know, (laughs) dewy-eyed. I had no idea um, really what I was getting into coming straight from and still working um, on my dissertation in grad school and trying to pick up some extra teaching. Uh, And the expectation at the time before any of these movements began was, yeah, this is shitty, but this is how it works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for that. That sounds like a shitty environment for, for working. Um, we want to hear about the inner workings and the origins of the campaign. So 
can you kind of start us off with um, what was going on? Um, you know, what was the relationship with SEIU and what were the main tactics that you all used to build uh, this unionization campaign? Absolutely. So uh, I started teaching at Seattle University in 2011 or 12. Um, and our campaign began uh, with the new academic year. So it had been fall of 2013. Uh, and at that time, there had already been conversations that I wasn't aware of with unions that were more traditionally representing teachers. So um, AFT, um, what was the other one? Uh, There's another one they're talking with as well. And nobody was really willing to take on the campaign. Um, because they figured it was going to be a really expensive fight. You're talking about a large unit that has to be organized. Um, it was pretty clear that the university was going to be willing to invest some funds to push back against it. Um, the irony was not lost on us at a Jesuit, you know, social justice focused institution that had buildings on campus named after famous labor leaders that they were going to really mobilize uh, to push back against, against this campaign. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of how our relationship with SEIU began. And that's about when I was kind of brought into the process. Um, They were just starting um, their kind of national campaign around uh, adjunct unionization. And we're one of the first places they're really trying to dip in. Um, And so it was kind of a a marriage of convenience. Uh, The ways in which we were trying to find support for organizing because none of us really had that organizing background of what was forming as our kind of OC, our organizing committee. Uh, and so we needed, we knew we needed the firepower in terms of just pure like human hours on the ground, as well as the funding for this, um, because there was anticipation that there could potentially be some type of legal fight, but we had no idea the extent that this was going to go. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the start and, and how we ended up with SEIU Um, No, some of us were savvy enough to understand that it wasn't exactly the first choice um, because that kind of larger corporate union structure, you know, voices can be lost, um, but it quickly became our only choice if we wanted to proceed and and know we'd have enough financial and uh, hourly backing to do it and do it right. Right. And that seems like a... um... Uh, a common situation that you know folks who are trying to organize kind of have to have to grapple with there's there's a lot that you kind of have to compromise when you choose a a union like SEIU and I definitely want to hear more about your thoughts on that but as you say they kind of have the basically the money and the resources to um, kind of you know run a campaign like that that seems like it could be really extensive yeah, and, and, you know, I think still at that time period, even though SEIU is quickly becoming the largest or one of the largest unions in the country, I still think that they had a feeling of being the new kid on the block because mm-hmm. so many of the established unions just weren't organizing. Mm-hmm. Um, they were more or less treading water and trying to persevere and protecting gains they had made. Um, and SEIU is one of the few nationwide besides like Unite Here that were really engaged in massive organizing campaigns. Um, but, you know, because of the scale that they were they were organizing within, um, there there wasn't a lot of opportunity or attention to the particulars, to the idiosyncrasies of where they were organizing. Right. It was kind of a, a one uh, stop model for whatever the kind of workplace was. And there's elements of that that carried over really well into our campaign. But there are other elements that did not. Um, and there was some some back and forth and they were willing to adjust. Um, and, and it was also overcoming this kind of sense, I think, amongst a lot of our faculty, that they are um, 
you know, terminal degree, higher ed, white collar, unions aren't for those spaces. Yeah, totally. Unions are for others. And and we had to really have those conversations. Like, you know, think about every other teacher in, in professions around the country. Almost all of them uh, are, are organized within these spaces. Um, but especially in the private sector uh, or in a private university, and especially with one with a kind of religious underpinning, um, we, we really found out really quickly the reticence of, of some people not to get involved. Um, there's widespread agreement, but uh, the reticence to be public about their involvement because of how yeah. tenuous the jobs were. Yeah, that's such an interesting aspect of organizing in, in higher ed is that you'll find that faculty themselves who have terrible working conditions and deserve so much better are so are so invested i think for their own kind of sense of self in this idea of a professional class and that they they have been kind of trained in graduate school to think of themselves as you know these um future professionals and it can be kind of a blow to think of well you know you, you're kind of you're you're a worker here and you're kind of actually like in a pretty shitty situation, you know, it's, it's, it's a thing I've definitely come up against a lot myself, but um, yeah. yeah I think graduate school does a, a, mm-hmm. a number on folks in different ways. Um, it is a professionalization program as much as anything else. Right. And, and I definitely remember being in, in a PhD program and hearing from folks so like, Oh, well, at least it's not an MBA. Oh, at least it's not law school. It's not, you know, where they are really, trying to um, deconstruct and reconstruct a version of what you are in those professional spaces. And I was kind of like, uh, that's, that's happening to us too, <laughs> right? Like we, we are not escaping this. And there's this sense that, uh, you know, academia relies on this idea that because there is this, you know, um, giant air quotes, you know, shining higher pursuit of knowledge that's going on, your expectations around pay is like, you, you, have, you have chosen this path of enlightenment of others. And as a result, you cannot expect much in return. Um, and that gets embedded in you, especially if you're at an R1 university and you're TAing a lot as well, right, for poverty wages, um, that you, that expectation never is challenged. Um, and, and so it was interesting to see for a lot of the folks who were trying to organize that light click on and be like, oh yeah, I am a worker. Um, and especially, especially because the key thing was getting students to understand the context. Mm-hmm. And once students were on board and once they had a deeper appreciation for what some of their favorite instructors were dealing with, they were, and, and they also know how much tuition they're paying, they were irate. And that is when we grabbed momentum, was really when the students got engaged. I want to follow up on the student thing in a minute, but before doing so, um, you mentioned just overcoming that hurdle. And um, I'd love to hear how that happened in the context of the campaign. Was it primarily through one-on-one conversations? What were you all doing as you were doing outreach and so forth? And then also you mentioned uh, formation of an organizing committee. How did that organizing committee form? So those were the two things I wanted to, and then maybe we can jump into the student part, which is a big important part. Great. Yeah. So the OC formed, um, I think through, you know, always by word of mouth and always in these clandestine means. Right. Um, but it, it really came about, um, with a core group of folks who had already been doing this kind of work behind the scenes and like really behind the scenes. I've been there for two years and had heard anything about this. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I think I'd 
developed enough of a reputation, uh, there was an assumption I would be on board if someone approached me. Um, and so it was really a smattering of folks. They, they did a good job of, we were a committee of people across different disciplines. Um, we were thinking in advance about who, I mean, every campus, regardless of size, has those kind of, um, I don't know how you define them, but they're, they're this kind of locus that has connections across different aspects of campus um, because of either where they teach, because of personality, because of length of engagement, because of all kinds of different reasons. Um, but that formation was, was pretty organic um, because it was before any other unions were involved. So it was completely you know, grassroots at that point in terms of folks who were getting uh, organized. And then once we had some kind of um, larger support, then we were really strategic about reaching out to other people and seeing who might have the time to, to jump into this. Um, because that was one thing, you know, I would, as I said, I was going in not being part of a campaign in the past. And so I had no idea for what I was in for in terms of timing and, and other aspects of that. So the OC formed pretty organically. In terms of how we started turning the tide amongst adjuncts, I would love to say it's because of our overwhelming charisma and one-on-one -on -one <laughs> conversations. But the one-on-one -on -one conversations, um, some of them were really problematic because if you think about this, right, think about who SEIU is hiring as organizers, right? Organizers are usually like brand new off the street undergrads. So you have 22 and 23 year olds going and talking to college professors to tell them about their working conditions and convince them to join a union. And it was, mm, it was hilarity. Yeah. Um, it, it just was a total break. And like SEIU didn't have any awareness of this. Um, mm. They grew to understand better, right? Uh, as we showed them over time. But honestly, you know, the, the saying has been around for a long time because it's so true. The boss is the best organizer. Mm -hmm. What happened was mm -hmm. once word started spreading um, during that fall quarter about the organizing campaign, um, their campaign uh, to stop organizing kicked in. And clearly they hadn't either hired their uh, consultants yet um, or their consultants were not prepared because they sent out an email. I think it was in November or December. And the tone of it was was something to the effect of uh, you are all tiny children wandering in the forest um, <laughs> a union a union is a dangerous thing mm -hmm. um you know you have no idea what you're potentially in for we have your best interest at heart and and the tone of it was so over the top uh, and and was so just like top-down hierarchical structure and and folks read that email and they were like fuck you, right? Mm -hmm. Like, where do I sign a card? Yeah. And I think, I think we tripled card signage after that email came out within a couple of days. Wow. Interesting. Um, yeah. And then people started having those conversations. We're willing to sit down and have them and learn more. Um, that's when, that's when our campaign really mm -hmm. started to get some, some traction. So going back to the student thing, um, you, you said that once you got students on board, that's when things really took off. I, I'd like to know more about that. And just basically, you know, your efforts building solidarity with other groups on, on campus, um, you know, tenured faculty, staff, it just, it seems like all those elements are so important to building a, a strong campaign. What was that like? Yeah, that part of it, I, I you know, was actually relatively easy. Um, the administration themselves and the the institution itself had already shot itself in the foot for going after a campaign that was more or less in line with all of the missions and values of the university itself right seattle u isn't just a jesuit university they consider themselves a very progressive jesuit university and students are looking specifically for that 
right? They want that environment with small classrooms where with a social justice emphasis across all of the different curricula. Um, and so the students were primed. In fact, I, I was lamenting when I first started after my first year at CLU, I'm like, there's no activism on this campus for a social justice university. There's no tabling even. There's barely student groups that are active and engaged. There were a couple um, that became key to, to the work that we ended up doing. Um, but it was it was dead in terms of that. But you could tell students were wanted something to dig into, wanted something to 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 go for. And if you think about it, right, 2011, 12, 13, um, it, it just there's no like larger societal relevance, I think, to a lot of young people. There are things going on, but it wasn't finding its way onto campus. Mm. So once our campaign began, um, we got some coverage in the school paper right away. The school paper was widely read there. Um, they ended up becoming a, a regular kind of ally, uh, especially because admin was unwilling to sit down for interviews with folks. Um, admin at the time was um, friendly father Steve, the president. Um, that's what everyone called uh, He father seems Steve. like a piece of work just reading some of his quotes. <laughs> yeah, if you want to go and dig into some of the background and, and how he's been part of uh, the hierarchy within the church, it's some fascinating stuff. Um, but he, but, you know, he was this kind of, you know, he's supposed to be this the, the friendly and, and most Jesuit universities in the country at the time did not have people from the clergy as part of the highest level administration. So this is pretty rare at Seattle U. So it was about this relational campus environment. Um, but students were were upset. There was something that happened. I remember, I think it was the year I started before about um, certain types of healthcare that would or wouldn't be available in terms of student populations on campus within their clinics that really got people up in arms. Um, there's starting to be protests around various issues in terms of Seattle U's investments. Um, Seattle U is a university that doesn't have a significant endowment. They rely heavily, heavily, heavily on tuition, um, especially tuition from uh, master's level professional programs, MBA, law school. I mean, that's bread and butter for them. Uh, and, and so there were some also pushes from students uh, because they knew they were shouldering the financial burden um, and then linking that with once we started giving them the financials. Uh, I remember I, I was in a class and I was, uh, you know, I, I'm not using the classroom time to campaign, but students were asking about this. They'd heard more about it. We were talking about labor history. Um, and so I, I, there, I, I told them that essentially it took about three of them in this class of 25 students to pay for me. <laughs> it was a little less than three of them, like two and a half of you, the tuition you pay, if you break it down for this class, pays my salary for this class. And they were like, where does all the other money go? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, that's a fantastic question. Mm -hmm. um, and so once things like that started getting out, the students really were ready to mobilize. And um, the other thing is, we all had really good working relationships with our students, right? They got to know us. I was teaching a lot there. I was a part-timer. I was a sabbatical fill. I was practically full-time. I had students who took five different classes with me mm -hmm. um, while I was there. And some of those students were the people that were on the uh, banners that are on like the light posts around Seattle U. Um, <laughs> folks who are like the, yeah. you know, the, the special the scholars or it, yeah. oh, D1 athletes. We had some of these D1 athletes, like the leading uh, scorer in the country in women's soccer. Like all these folks were like jumping on and they're being very vocal and very public supporting um, this campaign and, and supporting their part-time instructors. And it made all the difference in the world. Nice. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about the opposition. You mentioned, for example, that the admin, whether or not they had their consultants and so forth, you mentioned that email. But overall, as the campaign's progressing, 
um, what kind of union busting tactics are happening and how are you all reacting to that? And then, yeah. you know, what happened with the vote? Uh, and then yeah. I guess we could get into the post votes. In the moment after that. So, um, so the, they hired a, um, they hired a, a, a labor practice that specifically does union busting work. In fact, we found some of their, um, some of the emails we got, we found boilerplate language that matched with other, uh, anti-union campaigns at other campuses. It was amazing. And we we did all we could to blast that out because um, they were trying to get it. So we lost control of the email list and, and email servers. So we couldn't send out uh, messages to everybody. Um, they were uh, sending regular emails. They were starting to do uh, captive audience sessions where they'd bring us in as info sessions about unions. And so we made sure that every single one of those we salted and just asked really direct questions about, oh, well, what about this? Oh, what about that? And so those things ended up blowing up in their faces as well. Um, what ends up happening is we start getting cards and I think they realize that we're, we're going to have enough cards to file an election because uh, we started in September, 2013. Um, by December, the campaign had started pushing back against the union. By January and February, various like national Jesuit um, groups uh, asked the university to take a neutral stance mm. and Seattle U refused. So we had like national Jesuit workers publications and magazines um, more or less uh, issuing uh, statements and publishing our editorials around neutrality. Um, and so by the time we get to February of 2014, we have enough cards. Um, and so we go file for an election um, and instantly there's a lawsuit um, and a challenge at the National Labor Relations Board to our filing for a union um, under the, the pretense of, I think one was a religious argument that um, instructors are part of the religious mission of the university uh, and thus aren't subjected uh, to protections under uh, the National Labor Relations Act. Um, there's some precedent to, that they're trying to use to back that up. And then there were a couple issues as well. They also said that um, we didn't include everybody in the unit that we should have, if I remember correctly, because uh, we were we didn't include the nursing program and there's one other one as well uh, in the unit. Um, and we were kind of like, yeah, bring them on in. The nurses are all <laughs> unionized anyways. Um, and there's one other issue as well, um, but I can't remember off the top of my head. And so what ends up happening is we end up in uh, National Labor Relations Board uh, hearings. So I am brought up in what looks like a courtroom in front of a judge, and I'm getting questioned by an attorney for this union busting law firm. And he's essentially asking me about my class content to see whether or not I am teaching towards the religious mission of the university. Mm -hmm. um, and bless our wonderful students, a bunch of them showed up to these hearings, and they were a <laughs> rowdy bunch. Um, so he was asking me questions about class content. At that time, I was teaching a class called Activism, Protest, and the Law, looking at the history of radical resistance movements within the U.S. Um, and so he was asking me things about, oh, well, you know, do you, do you teach about these things? And I was talking about, you know, feminist movements. I was talking about anarchist movements. I was talking about direct action movements. Um, and he's like, well, you know, how do you, uh, you know, what are these these things are you talking about in terms of, you keep saying structures of power. What do you mean by that? I'm like, well, you know, when we're talking about these, these movements in terms of um, empowering women within these various spaces, you know, we talk about the, the structural, you know, legacy of, of patriarchy and the ways in which it finds its way. Well, how do you define that? So I give some definition. And he's like, well, you know, how do your students That's respond to dang, this? Dang. Yeah. Right. And, I'm oh, I'm loving the hell out of this. <laughs> um, and... And, you know, how do your, how do your students, you know, 
to respond when they learn about this. And I, I can't, I said something flip about, I don't need to teach any of the women in my class about any of these things. I innately <laughs> know it. People start cheering and clap, right? Like the whole thing was ridiculous. It was a kangaroo court. The judge tried to get control at the beginning and then she's just cracking up. She started laughing. Really? Like some Is there a transcript of this hearing? Really yeah. Uh, I imagine there has to be somewhere uh, in the National Labor Relations Archives. But um, the the point great. of what they were asking was to determine whether there was whether there was religious content or whether like specifically whether you your instruction was part of fulfilling the religious mission of the college. That's how they were trying to determine whether you're eligible to unionize. Yeah, well, so there's there there are various precedents um, around labor law about who can form unions um, and who is potentially, um, you know, uh, who who has the right to kind of push back. And a lot of these are based on kind of weird religious liberty laws um, about certain institutions if they're private um, and it's against uh, the underlying uh, mission or, or religious underpinnings of the thing of the university. If you are someone working within a religious institution um, towards those ends, you aren't subjected to the same types of um, kind of labor protections. There's 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 a bunch of different parts of this, and I wasn't deep into the uh, the legal precedent at the time, uh, but the idea was they were trying to. Uh, essentially get at what is the content and show that the content in some way is like backing up the mission of what the university is doing. And thus we're under these certain protocols. And um, if the university doesn't want to recognize our union, they don't have to. Um, so there's, there's a few different ways this happened, but wow. what ends up happening is, you know, we have these, these legal cases um, in April of that year, NLRB comes out with their ruling um, and we went on all counts. They throw out all of the complaints um, and so we're allowed to proceed with our election. Um, so we get to the end of 2014, so June of 2014, at the end of the school year, um, the election takes place. And uh, a week after the election takes place, um, SEIU files a lawsuit to seal the ballots uh, and appeals our right to unionize. Um, so this instead is going around is, is back with the national labor relations board you said S know. you said seiu did you mean the administration oh, of seattle yeah, U? Yeah, sorry seattle mm -hmm. U. um seattle U uh, files suit to seal the ballots um and appeal once again our right to unionize um and they know it's going to take a while and it and the summer's coming so they're hoping for a loss of momentum mm -hmm. and and everything else that comes with that and and they get some of that mm -hmm. um because there's not really, I mean, there's there's consistent conversations about, but there's no more organizing to do. Mm -hmm. Votes already been had, and we're getting mm -hmm. all these questions like, "What's happening? Did we win the union? Like, mm -hmm. like we're not actually allowed to open the the ballots." Oh wow! So we're in this state of limbo essentially mm -hmm. from July of 2014 until um, September of 2016. What? You didn't even Damn. know the outcome. <laughs> two years over two years and and by then i was realized already, I was, that. by then i, I mean, was gone well My of course you know adjuncts adjuncts are so you know they come and they go you know yeah. it's yeah so i think there were one or two members of the organizing committee left by the time were on campus by the time the ballots were actually open i'm sure they um, were counting on that absolutely yeah um and the delay was overwhelmingly effective but mm. in between that there were other things that that happened um there was national adjunct walkout day um which ended up we were the largest participant in this national day of action 
Um, we had students who blocked intersections in Capitol Hill around Seattle University and were arrested, as well as faculty members. Um, we had national press coverage. Uh, you can still go back and find interviews of me on like NPR and uh, random outlets. Uh, and we had huge turnout. The students walked out en masse. We had hundreds and hundreds of students who were out um, supporting us. Uh, and, and it was huge because at any point, the university could, ve could very simply say, okay, we'll drop the appeal. You can open mm -hmm. the ballots, allow a democratic process to take place. Mm -hmm. um, and, and they refused. And so um, CLU, uh, we had that the walkout. Another appeal was filed in March of 2015. It wasn't until August when the NLRB ruled the ballots could be counted and they were counted in September and we won. Mm -hmm. um, and then they refused to bargain with us. Mm -hmm. um, they moved it out of the National Labor Relations Court into federal courts mm -hmm. um, on the grounds of religious freedom and took it to federal circuit court where, uh, where they told us very specifically, we're going to pursue this all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, and by then we're getting to October 2016. Uh, we all know what happens in November of 2016. The NLRB becomes a very different space mm -hmm. um, with the new presidential administration. Um, and so by the time this starts working its way through the courts, it's getting its way to um, appeal appellate level courts just below the Supreme Court. And SEIU drops the legal battle in January of 2018 because they see the writing on the wall that could establish detrimental precedent. Um, based upon the way the courts were trending and and just the pure cost and time of this. So um, I want to talk more about that outcome um, and and your your thoughts on that decision. But uh, before that, you know, you said so you said you your contract was not renewed kind of in that in that was like in that limbo time. Can you tell us about that? Do you consider that to be retaliation? And what was the student response? So for anybody out there who's you know been a part-time instructor at a college, your employment comes and goes. Um, and sometimes it's based upon enrollment. Sometimes it's based upon um, you know somebody being on leave. Um, I was a sabbatical fill for some of the time that I was there. Uh, it's about new personnel coming in and out of the department. There's lots of things. Um, I actually, I remember really distinctly. So the other thing to add into this is in 2014, in June, um, uh, we had uh, twins and they were in the NICU for two months in the hospital across the street from Seattle U. Wow. So I was showing up in the morning, hanging out with the kids, going and teaching, coming back, hanging out with the kids, going home and doing that along all of this. And this was... Uh, it was at about that time, I think it was, that I found out that I wasn't going to be renewed. So they told me in fall of the academic year that I was going to finish out, that I wasn't going to have a job the next year. And just said, you know, just no spot for it. Um, just not going to happen. You know, you're not being renewed. And and so I was like, all right. You know, I, I of course, I'm thinking about my heavy involvement and and being kind of one of the loudest voices in the campaign. Um, but, you know, I'm an at-will contracted worker. Uh, there is, you know, um, there is a, a tough line to draw between that. Um, and also, I, it was interesting because I think the university understood this when they heard that, that, that I wasn't being renewed. Um, I remember having a one-on-one -on -one meeting. I thought it was a one-on-one -on -one meeting with one of the associate deans or something. And they brought in someone else as like an outside observer, like another dean just to sit in the room. And they were very specifically being like, 
we want to let you know you're not being let go because, you know, they were trying <laughs> oh, to get all dang. this stuff on the record, mm -hmm. um, which was really, really interesting um, uh, and, and, and pretty fascinating. But word got out um, among students that I wasn't going to be because as they were looking to register for classes, they usually have like they could look uh, pretty far out in advance for class stuff. And students were asking me about classes and teach next year. And I told them, you know, I'm not going to be here. And students put those things together, right, mm -hmm. instantly, and were like, "Oh, mm -hmm. you're clearly you're being fired for this." I'm like, "I, you know, I don't know. I'm I'm an at will employee. These are things that happen." Um, and this a petition was started that ended up having it's I think it's still up online somewhere hundreds mm -hmm. um, of signatures from students, from parents, from others. Mm -hmm. um, there were protests on campus. It it mm -hmm. got to a whole other level, and then. On top of that, at the end of the year, I was told by a student who's on a committee that was assigning teaching awards that I was in line to be instructor, uh, you know, in arts and sciences to win some award, and that the committee had a very heated uh, discussion. And <laughs> I, I, I ended up in uh, what she called uh, she was like, you got, and she gave me the air quotes, second place. So all that was going on too, but at, at that point, I mean, the writing was on the wall. It, it wasn't going to be a uh, pleasant work environment, um, mm -hmm. and I was looking for something that was more permanent. Um, and and you know, it was it was a lot. I'm sure it was tough for like my colleagues in the department as well. Um, you know, they they were they were overwhelmingly supportive, but you know, they it's a department that functions based on what their needs are and what's going on, and it was drawing a lot of attention that I'm sure was uncomfortable and a pain. Um, so yeah, it was, it was, it ended the way it did. I was able though, uh, to, uh, finish off the year and, uh, get that time, um, with kids and get a little bit of, uh, time off because I'd, I'd worked there for so long that I had actually qualified supposedly, uh, for paternity leave, but it hadn't really been given to part-timers before. But I mean, mm -hmm. based upon all the stats I went in hard for it, I was like, Hey, mm -hmm. right. Like. And they already knew I was on my way out. So I think that was their final like. You're like, throw them a bone. That Go was, away. That was the, like, sev yeah. the severance yeah. package was <laughs> apply a benefit. But I was overwhelmingly yeah. lucky compared to a lot of my colleagues in terms of what their conditions were like as part timers. But during the campaign, guess what happens, right? They start raising pay. Um, mm. They start removing some of those barriers about mm. benefits getting slashed. If you got they they opened up new spaces for offices that you know all of a sudden were available now randomly. Um, a bunch of those things were being met right to try to kill momentum in that in that movement. Uh, and pay has more than doubled since um, since I was there. From what I've heard from folks who are who are teaching there now, so I, I think that the campaign you know had those tangential successes that many organizing campaigns do, even if they're ultimately not successful. And the funny thing is ours was successful. They just refused to, to bargain with us. Yeah. So I think now is a good time to sort of shift into the big picture because we got a lot of the great details on the campaign. And um, we wanted to ask you kind of zooming out, what are the, some of the key lessons from this struggle that apply to adjunct organizing? Yeah. Um, well, I am now, uh, you know, uh, teaching as a, a full-timer um, at a unionized workplace. Um, uh, adjuncts and full-time folks are unionized where I work now. Uh, and so I see what some of those benefits look like and, and get a sense then of, of how, if these campaigns are going to be waged in the future, um, you know, what needs to be at the forefront. One is just environmental, right? One is just like what's in the air and what's in the water at the time when these campaigns take place. 
Um, and right now, as we're seeing this surge of organizing across the country, across all different types of sectors, especially in the service space, um, I think there's renewed interest and um, renewed attention being paid to what these campaigns look like. So the first thing is it's some of it's just about timing. Um, second, you know, if you're starting these campaigns at private institutions, um, you're going to be better off understanding what are the specific barriers of, of organizing uh, professionals, especially those who don't think of themselves as workers in that same way. Um, and I think what you have to pursue is understanding and showing them how sister institutions um, can take better care when they mm. have a, a union contract and show them that this isn't uh, and doesn't have to be the expectation that they're faced with, that there are other ways that people are able to have some say and control over the workplace. Um, and the other is is really leaning heavily on having part-time participation and shared governance um, that is stipend and that is attached to all of the, the main functions of the institution. Um, because if you aren't in those kind of backroom conversations, um, you aren't going to have the understanding of those pressure points and where power lies with institution and who needs to be convinced within those spaces. Um, as well as getting a better sense of what uh, the fight and the pushback is going to look like um, coming from the other side. Uh, the other, the one big thing is get that time to understand the finances of the institution itself, right? Once we were able to understand, you know, the finances of Seattle University, we had a lot more information to provide to students and to other allies um, to find what those pressure points are. And if you're uh, going in without that, that, that can be really tough. Uh, because I was also later part of a campaign at the University of Washington um, to, to organize those folks. And, and they were ill-prepared for that campaign for many of us, the same reasons. Um, you kind of touched on this, but just, you know, one of the things that was really just so interesting to me when I was kind of doing a little reading to learn more about the campaign was just, the nature of their arguments based on being a religious institution, just the whole religious freedom thing and separation of church and state. And just this argument, which I didn't realize had all of this legal precedent that uh, if you're a religious university, you're somehow not subject to labor law, even though they have other union. I mean, there are other unionized workers at CLU, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I don't know. I'm just curious to to dig into that a little bit more, you know, what, what, what are the implications of this and, and also how you use it in your campaign. Cause you mentioned that you tried to foreground like the hypocrisy of, okay, this is like a Jesuit, you know, social justice college and kind of like pointing out the, um, the, the hypocrisy of, you know, the, these people, like what's the president's name, Sonberg, who are, um, coming down so hard on labor yeah. stuff. Yeah, so that there's a few things you bring up that are really key to what we're doing our campaign. One was that there was plenty of folks who were unionized workers on campus. And in, in fact, one, one of my favorite things that happened during this campaign was um, one of the students who I was really close with worked in food services um, on campus. And, and they were able to uh, launch an organizing campaign and gained union um, representation and or and were able to successfully hold the union election and were recognized by the university all within i think eight months um, and they organized through unite here 
Mm. Um, there's other folks on campus who were uh, organizing unionize as well. The, the difference and the way that that argument is split is whether or not the folks who are organized are part of the religious mission of the institution. Um, so the folks in the food service didn't count, um, but those those students became huge, like in terms of union solidarity partners with us during our campaign. Um, but the that little kind of bit, so U.S. labor law at, at its origination, um, you know, really hasn't changed a ton except for erosions of protections. And the the ways in which some groups were left out was one was the religious argument you're talking about before, um, but the other was you know things like agricultural workers. Um, there weren't the same regulations around child labor. There weren't the same regulations around hours, and and you know those have been built in over time. Um, and many of those regulations still don't exist. It's been you know pressure campaigns uh, and amazing movements by folks who put everything on the line in order to gain that recognition uh, initially, but. Um, it was really pointing out hypocrisy was super easy. And, and I think that the students innately got it like that. And as word got out to the larger community, they were also, um, you know, some of the folks who were uh, contentious, you know, you comment sections and in, uh, in newspaper articles, things like that, were like, well, you know, well, why don't you just talk with, with these religious leaders, right? <laughs> like, you know, Father Steve and the Jesuits there. They, they all have this you know, history of maybe maybe you guys just need to have a conversation. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was it was fun to kind of reflect on that and also share that, like, you know, these folks are unwilling to engage with us. They're unwilling to actually have conversations other than the classic captive audience meetings um, and that they saw the mission of the university more clearly hewn towards religious liberty rather than the social justice that's on every banner, that's on every mission statement that's listed in every classroom. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> in kind of another wrapping up mold, I wanted to ask about the, when a struggle like this ends up in uh, the courts as much as this one did. And then when the moment came down for like, the climate has shifted Trump's in office, Trump's ability in the executive branch to, you know, to select members of the NLRB and so forth and Supreme Court um, changes. Um, what did you like, what do you think about that decision to drop the, you know, the legal fight and overall, just more broadly, the strategy of being cautious when it's in a legal sphere because of the issue of precedent setting decisions? Yeah, yeah it, it's, it's, it's a great question. Um, the funny thing is I never even knew that it got dropped because I was gone. I was two years gone. Uh, and I ran into a former colleague months afterwards. I was like, what's going on with that? Right. Have you heard anything? Oh yeah. Yeah. No, SEAU dropped, dropped the whole thing because they just couldn't afford it anymore. And they're worried about the president's going to be set in terms of larger kind of philosophical questions about that. So much of what constitutes labor law is totally unnecessary if you gain recognition from the employers themselves, right? That you can circumvent all of that legal wrangling mm -hmm. um, by simply having a contractual agreement that is made on you know, those, those other terms. So the, the legal space is, is not one about truth finding, right? It, it's, a, it's one about how to create spaces of delay to uh, enable forgetting, yeah. to enable amnesia around what 
brought this into being to begin with, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and that I think is a really effective part of um, our legal tradition and system to push back against social movements throughout, right? The the legal history of the country. Um, it's not a place where the way that that the current labor laws are set up is that they are kind of um, end of the line protections rather than spaces to create empowerment and, um, to move forward, right? They're essentially a lowest common denominator rather than a highest level um, I- ideal. And, and I learned that, you know, as part of this campaign, it was something that was totally outside of my purview other than, you know, being a teenager and looking up California state legal codes uh, because my employer was stiffing me on overtime. Um, but to think about it in that larger context of the federal courts, um, it got scary because I, I think SEIU made uh, the right decision to be frank. Mm. Um, because I think if that had continued on, it would have established um, a, a really problematic precedent. Mm. Um, I, don't, I don't think they gave up lightly. Um, I, I think they, they made a savvy decision ultimately. Do you think that it would have been possible to put enough pressure on the university to cave? And and what I mean is creating enough consequences for them through a movement that was, you know, really kind of creating a lot of negative publicity for them and stuff like that to make them decide that it wasn't worth pursuing? Or do you feel, because to me that seems like, oh, well, that's the kind of the potential way forward um, is to build a really like, you know, trying to to build build a broader grassroots movement that can do that. But of course, it's easy to say that, you know, it's easy for me to sit here and say that. But do you think that they would have yielded or you just think they were so entrenched that nothing was going to make them change their minds? I think it, I think enough was seemingly at stake from their point of view mm-hmm. um, that they were entrenched with this. I mean, they, they spent, you know, well over seven figures in order to fight this um, mm-hmm. based upon the information that we, we were able to find. Um, and, and that was directly of students' tuition, right? Um, and, and so that point was, was clear. I, I think it goes back to my first point. I think it goes back to the political environment. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't in the air, right? This movement of United campaigns. This was before um, recent decisions that um, uh, that overturned the protections of folks to pay union dues if they were experiencing the benefits of union representation, right? Uh, we've had Supreme Court precedent since where people could opt out, right, of paying union dues even though they're part of the union workforce. Um, and ironically, you know, I think that decision really reinfused the labor movement. Um, because it forced them to go back to grassroots organizing, which they had not been good at for a while, and forced them to go back in those spaces. I think right now, if a similar movement happened at Seattle U, I, I think it would have a good potential to be uh, successful. Mm. Uh, there's different administrative leadership now that mm. are outside of the clergy. There is the political climate we currently see ourselves in, in terms of massive labor movements that we haven't seen in probably three to four decades at this level. Mm. Um, and, and I think that the publicity, um, would get more traction than it did when we were mobilizing. There were moments when we had a lot of public support, but you know, the news cycles quick, things fall in and out. Um, and we were unable to sustain it when there's like a two year gap in the story. (laughs) It's not a great, like you have your lead and your story and your interview. And then it's like, we'll follow up in two and a half years when there's a resolution (laughs) on this. Right. 
Um, so uh, your question is a great one because it gets once again to the, that need of a climate that will, that will create the space um, for it to reverberate enough uh, to, to make that change. Well, is there anything else that you, that you want to share that you feel like we didn't get to? Uh, no, I, I mean, I think the, the thing that I would reaffirm is that um, looking back at my time at Seattle U, it, it still was one of my favorite places to teach. Mm. Um, the students were fantastic and it, it really reinforced my joy of being a classroom instructor, seeing students have our backs with, you know, the very little free time that they have as human beings through this. Um, it made me believe in what can be created in a campus community and the need to build that wherever I go. Um, not just in terms of organizing students, but in terms of understanding that what they're undertaking in, in undergraduate education is something that requires us to understand our role in it as well. And what I mean by that is what we do doesn't make any sense unless the students are forming some meaningful relationship with their learning, with the people who are doing that learning, and that we all feel like we're heading in a similar direction. And especially during COVID, and, and even before that, you could feel the academy moving towards a service provider type of model, right? Students as customers, um, we as the individuals who are serving their needs because of the fact that tuition is so out of control for these poor, poor mm -hmm. students. Um, and this, redirected that in my mind and showed the possibility of what building community and organizing can do of, of forging a meaningful educational relationship. Um, so that's, that's kind of what I took away, right? There's, there's all the shitty things that happened, but overwhelmingly, um, you know, as someone who's lucky enough to, to have a full-time position now, I, I take a lot of positives from, from what that is and what's possible to build. Awesome. I think that about hits all of our yeah. questions. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I I was uh, trying to you know figure out a timeline for all this stuff because I yeah. <laughs> I have the memory of a mosquito and so trying to loop this all back together it was well, really this helpful. This was quite a while ago at this point. Yeah. It's hard it's hard to remember those details. Yeah. Thank you yeah, so thanks, much. Larry. This was really really interesting. And, yeah. Um, yeah, a lot I, of good stuff. Honestly, just like kind of infuriating, actually. You know, as I was redoing the reading and then just listening to you, I was just like feeling pissed, you know, because you guys did a lot of great, organ really great organizing and you succeeded and they still kind of found a way to stick it to you, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's really, yeah. 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 I mean, in this, like, the other thing I was thinking, since this is a little bit more historical and a little bit more of like, you know, covering what happened, does it feel like, does it just feel like it's been erased or does it feel like you mentioned the gains and the wins, which was cool. I was glad that you brought that up, but like just having experienced something, does it feel just like, oh, dang, like, you know, all that work has been erased or does it sort of seem like it carries on? I, I mean... I think it's a blip. I think a lot of us, yeah. you know, the reset button with COVID was huge. Mm. Um, and the ways that institutional knowledge builds amongst students, especially within student organizations that are passed down, I think that there's a serious crack across the entire country of, of student-led groups and organizations that just don't have the institutional passing on that was so key to these things, having continuous momentum year in and year out. 
Uh, and for those of us right, who teach at two-year colleges as well, building on momentum is even more difficult because we have yeah. students for such a short period of time. Yeah, totally. And mm -hmm. so it, it really feels like it feels like history, David, right? It mm -hmm. feels like a crack and a blip of what was there before. I think there's clearly positive outcomes that come. Um, but yeah, I, I think it just exists in its own little hermetically sealed portion <laughs> of time at, at SU. But what it did garner, I think what did come from it in the aftermath um, was more sustained student engagement and activism on that campus. Because I saw there were massive sit-in movements when other departments had super problematic issues around curriculum. Mm. There were all types of things. And I could draw a through line to that organizing campaign that activated students and created this kind yeah. of generational activism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't believe that any of yeah. these things are completely isolated and, and have no effect. So yeah. I'm, I'm, and, 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 and I'm sure there's there must be some adjuncts who are still there, right? Who there's, are part of the campaign. I've, I've talked yeah. to a, a couple, and, yeah. and mm. conditions have have dramatically, mm. I, I think, improved. And I think new administration took that um, to heart a bit more. So there are long term impacts, but in terms of people thinking back to this campaign, the, the whatever, memory, just, the, yeah, 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 totally. Yeah. 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 Well, and then 2014 fall, you get the like first uprisings in the Black mm -hmm. Lives Matter wave. And so you, I, it just makes me wonder how much the students who had been in, you know, involved in this campaign and got organized and how much that leads them into other stuff, just as you're saying. Yeah. So, yeah. I, mean, I, can name, yeah. I can name several students from that time period who ended up um, moving into the organized labor movement um, mm. and oh, continue nice. to work yeah. in that, in that yeah. today. Um, so it was a socializing was, moment for them. It was, yeah. it was, it yeah. was a huge learn. It was an educational opportunity to understand mm -hmm. the, the promise of power, mm -hmm. even with the, you know, ultimate success, but never fully acknowledged or <laughs> followed through success mm -hmm. that this campaign represented. Thanks, well, Larry. Thank you so much, Larry. Hopefully yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see you soon. Yeah. Have Take a great care. weekend. Okay. Bye. Yeah. Bye. Our theme music is by Nigel Weiss. Our artwork is by Arthur K. You can find more of their artwork at rotradio.tumblr.com. We would love it if you subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. Rate and review us on all the major platforms. Thanks for listening. Bye.